Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the pod, talking about the old hail and farewell. We're up to book, uh, we're up to chapter five of book three. No comments. Absolutely unbearable, inexcusable drivel. Drivel, definition being nonsense. Um, <clears throat> I did find it interesting that there was a line that said, "An old man from the sea." I said, "Whom I cannot shake off." Old man from the sea being. Uh, curiously similar to The Old Man and the Sea, the title of the Hemingway book. Is that what it's called? The Old Man... Yeah, The Old Man and the Sea. Um, I wonder. Any uh, inspiration derived from that line? Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. Um, And I do believe that's all I have to say about this chapter. Remarkably boring. Um, So we continue to chapter six. If we, where are we? Chapter six. It is to Mr. Lane's extraordinary enthusiasm, energy, and love of art that we owe the pleasure of his beautiful collection of pictures, and that it may not be but a passing pleasure it is his proposal to collect funds for the purchase of these pictures, and to found a gallery of modern art in Dublin. A few days before the exhibition opened, he came to ask for an article about these pictures, but it seemed to me that I all I had to say about pictures in the form of articles I had already said, and I did not dare to accept his proposal to deliver a lecture of on French art until it occurred to me that, being probably the only person in Dublin who had known the painters, whose works hang on the wall, I might, without being thought too presumptuous, come here. I will not say to discuss French art. I prefer to say to talk about Manet, Degas, Renoir, Pizarro, Monet and Sisley, and in doing so to discuss French art indirectly. But before... Beginning to talk of these great men, I shall now, I shall tell how I came to know them, else you will be at a loss to understand why they are consented to know me. When my mother offered me a choice of Oxford or Cambridge, I told her that I had decided to go to Paris. My dear boy, your education, you learn nothing at school. That is why, my dear mother, I intend to devote myself entirely to my own education, and I think it can be better conducted by myself than by a professor. You are taking William with you? my mother asked. I answered that I had arranged that he should accompany me. My mother was soothed for a valet means conformity to certain conventions, but the young man who sets out on artistic adventure must try to separate himself from all conventions, whether of politics, society or creed, and my valet did not remain with me for more than six or eight months, for like Lord Byron's, his continual sighing after beef, beer and a wife, his incapacity for learning a single word of a foreign language, the beds he couldn't sleep on and the wines he couldn't drink, I forget how the sentence closes in the letter addressed perhaps to Mr. Murray, obliged me to send William Maloney back to England, but... Too much love of living was not the sole cause of William's dismissal. I had begun to feel that he stood between me and myself. I wished above all things to be myself, and to be myself I should have to live the outer as well as the inner life of the quarter. Myself was the goal I was making for, and to reach it I felt that I must put off the appearance of a gentleman, a change that my William resented and being unwilling to reduce him to the servitude of brushing French trousers and hats, I gave him the sack. He, 
died in Brompton Consumption Hospital. In the Middle Ages, young men went in search of the grail. Today, the cafe is the quest of a young man in search of artistic education, but the cafes about the Odeon and the Luxembourg Gardens did not correspond to my need. I wearied of noisy students. The Latin Quarter seemed to me a little out of fashion. Eventually, I migrated to the Montmartre and continued my search along the Boulevard Exterieur. One evening, I discovered my cafe on the place... Pigalle La Nouvelle Athenas, who named it in Nouvelle Athenas, I cannot say, some ancient cafeteria, who foresaw the future glory of his house, for it was La Nouvelle Athens before the Impressionists and Parnassians and the Realists came to spend their evenings on the Place Pigalle. Or was it the burly proprietor associated along in my mind with a certain excellent Rabel de Livier? The name sounds as if it were invented on purpose. You wouldn't have thought it was a new Athens if you had seen it in the 70s, still less if you saw it today, though it still stretches up the acclivity into Place Pigalle, opposite the fountain, the last house of a block of buildings. In my day, it was Café of Rates, literary and pictorial Durantry, one of the original realists, a contemporary of Flaubert, turned in to stay with us for an hour or so every night, a quiet elderly man who knew that he had failed and whom failure had saddened. Alexis Kyrd and Henique came in later. At the time I was speaking of Zola, had ceased to go to the café. He spent his evenings with his wife, but his disciples, all except Maupassant and Guzmans, I do not remember ever having seen them there, Collected every midnight about the marble tables, lured to the Nouvelle Athenas by their love of art, one generation of littérateurs associated itself with painting, the next with music. The aim and triumph of the realists were to force the pen to compete with the painter's brush, and the engraver's needle in the description, let us say, of a mean street, just as the desire of a symbolic writer was to describe the vague but intense sensations of music so accurately that the reader would guess the piece he had selected for description, though it were not named in the text. We all entertained doubts regarding the validity of the art we practised and envied the art of the painter, deeming it superior to literature, and it is hardly an exaggeration to say that we used to weary a little of conversation among ourselves, just as dogs weary of their own society, and I think there was a feeling of relief among us all when the painters came in. We raised ourselves up to welcome them, Manet, Degas, Renoir, Pissarro, Monet, and Sisley. They were our masters. A partition rising a few feet or more over the hats of the men sitting at the t- four marble, marble tables separated the glass front from the main body of the cafe. Two tables in the right-hand corner were reserved for Manet and Degas, and it is pleasant to remember my longing to be received into that circle, and my longing to speak to Manet, whom I had begun to recognise as the great new force in painting. But evening after evening went by without my daring to speak to him, nor did he speak to me until, one evening, thrice happy evening, as I sat thinking of him pretending to be busy correcting proofs, he asked me if the conversation of the café did not distract my attention, and I answered, no, but you do. So like are you to your painting? It seems to me that we became friends at once, for I was invited to his studio in the Rue d'Amsterdam, where his greatest works were painted, all the works that are Manet and nothing but Manet, the real Manet, 
the Parisian Manet, but before speaking of his painting, some description of his personality is essential to an understanding of Manet. It's often said that the personality of the artist concerns us not, and in the case of bad art it is certainly true, for bad art reveals no personality. Bad art is bad art because it is anonymous. The work of the great artist is himself, and being one of the great painters, greatest painters that ever lived, Manet's art was all Manet. One cannot think of Manet's paintings without thinking of the man himself. The last time I saw Monet was at dinner in the Café Royale, and after talking of many things, suddenly, without any transition, Monet said, speaking out of a dream, how like Manet was to his painting, and I answered, delighted, for it is always exciting to talk about Manet. Yes, how like. The blonde, amusing face, the clear eyes, that saw simply, truly, and quickly. And having said so much... My thoughts were went. My thoughts went back to the time when the glass door of the cafe grated upon the sanded floor and Manet entered. Though by birth and by education essentially Parisian, there was something in his appearance and manner of speaking that often suggested an Englishman. Perhaps it was his dress, his clean-cut clothes and figure. That figure, those square shoulders that swaggered as he went across the room, and the thin waist, the face, the beard, the nose, satyr-like. Shall I say no? For I would evoke an idea of beauty, of line united to that of intellectual expression, frank words, frank passion in his convictions, loyal and simple phrases, clear as well water, sometimes a little hard, sometimes as they flowed away bitter, but at the fountainhead sweet and full of light. A man is often well told in an anecdote, and I remember a young man who Manet thought well of, bringing his sister with him to the studio of the Rue Amsterdam. Not an ill-looking girl, no better, no worse than another, a little commonplace, that was all. Manet was affable and charming. He showed his pictures. He talked volubly. But next day, when the young man arrived and asked Manet what he thought of his sister, Manet said, extending his arm, the gesture was habitual to him. The last girl in the world I should have thought of was your sister. The young man protested, saying Manet had seen his sister dressed to her disadvantage. She was wearing a thick woolen dress, for there was snow on the ground. Manet shook his head. I haven't to look twice. I'm in the habit of judging things. These were his words, or very nearly, and they seemed to me to throw a light upon Manet's paintings. He saw quickly and clearly and stated what he saw candidly, almost in innocently. It was not well-mannered, perhaps, to speak of a brother of his sister's in those terms. But we have not come here to discuss good manners, for what are manners but the conventions that obtain a certain moment, and among a certain class? Well, well-mannered people do not think sincerely, their minds are full of evasions and subterfuges. Well-mannered people constantly feel that they would not like to think like this or that, or that they would like, would not like to think like that. What? Let me read that back. Let me just read that back. Well-mannered people constantly feel that they would not like to think like this or that they would not like to think like that. That they, that they would not like to think like this or that they would not like to think like that. That's the, sen that's the sentence of this guy who's been for a whole book judging other people's writing. That they would not like... They constantly feel that they would not like to think like this or that they would not like to think like that. And whoever, whosoever feels he would not like to think out of the end, every thought that may come into his mind should turn from Parnassus. In, I'm gonna, oh my god. 
That is, without a doubt, the worst sentence I've ever read. In his search for new formulas, new moulds, all the old values must be swept aside. The artist must arrive at a new estimate of things. All must go into the melting pot in the hope that out of the pot may emerge a new consummation of himself. For this end, he must keep himself free from uh, all creed. From all dogma, from all opinion, remembering that as he accepts the opinions of others, he loses his talent. All his feelings and all his ideas must be his own, for art is a personal rethinking of life from end to end, and for this reason the artist is always eccentric. He is almost unaware of all of your moral codes. He laughs at them when he thinks of them, which is rarely, and he is unashamed as a little child. The world unashamed perhaps explains Manet's art better than any other. It is essentially unashamed, and in speaking of him one must never be afraid to repeat the word unashamed. Manet was born in what is known as refined society. He was a rich man in dress and appearance. He was an aristocrat, but to be aristocratic in art, one must avoid the aristocracy, and Manet was obliged for the sake of his genius to spend his evenings in the cafe of Nouvelle Athens, for there he found artists lacking in talent perhaps, but long-haired, shabbily dressed outcasts by choice uh, and conviction, and from them he could get that which the artist needs more than all else, appreciation. He needed the rapine, as the fixed star needs the planet, and the faith of the rapine is worth more to the artist than the bosom of the hostess, though she thrives in the Champs-Élysées. The rapine helped Manet to live, for in the years I knew him, he never sold a picture, and you will ask yourself and wonder how it was that in a city like Paris, great pictures should remain unsold, I will tell you. In many ways, Paris is more like the rest of the world than we think, for the moneyed man in Paris, like the moneyed man in London, admires the pictures in proportion as they resemble other pictures. But the Rapin likes pictures in proportion as they differ from other pictures. After Manet's death, his friends made some little stir, there was a sale, and then the prices sank again, sank almost to nothing, and it seemed as if the world would never appreciate Manet, there was a time, 15 or 16 years ago, when Manet's pictures could have been brought for 20, 30, 40 or 50 pounds apiece, and I remember saying to Albert Wolfe, some years after Manet's death, how is it that Degas and Whistler and Monet have come into their inheritance, but there is no sign of recognition of Manet's art? Wolfe answered, the time will never come when people will care for Manet's paintings. And I left Tortoni's, asking myself if the most beautiful painting in the world had ever seen was destined to remain the most unpopular. That was 15 years ago, and it took 15 years for the light of Manet's genius to reach Ireland. I have been asked which of the two pictures hanging in this room it would be better to buy for the Gallery of Modern Art. The in itinerant musician or the portrait of Mademoiselle Gonzalez, Mr. Lane himself, put this question to me, and I answered it. I am afraid whichever you choose you will regret. You had not chosen the other. The picture of the inerrant musician is a Spanish Manet. It was painted after Manet, who has been seen Goya, but it is a Manet as much as the portrait of Mademoiselle Gonzalez. To anyone who knows Manet's work, it possesses all the qualities which we associate with Manet. All the same, there is a veil between us and Manet in the Spanish picture. The veil is very thin, but there is a veil. The large picture is Manet and Goya, but the portrait is Manet and nothing but Manet. And the portrait is an article of faith, for it says... 
Being not ashamed of anything, but to be ashamed. There are manets that I like more, but the portrait of Madame Mazagalas isn't that what Dublin needs. Salvation comes like a thief in the night. And it may be that Madame Gonzalez will be purchased. If so, it will perhaps help to bring about the crisis we are longing for, the spiritual crisis when, when men shall begin once more to think out life for themselves, when men shall return to nature naked and unashamed. The glass door of the cafe grates open. Great upon the sand again, and Degasse enters a ground-shouldered man in a suit of pepper salt. Now there is nothing very trenchantly French about him, except the large necktie. His eyes are small, his words sharp, ironical, cynical. Degas and Manet are the leaders of the Impressionistic school, and their friendship has been jarred. But once, when Degas came to the Rue Amsterdam and sat with his back to the pictures, saying that his eyes were too weak to look at them, if your eyes are too weak, you shouldn't have come to see me, Manet answered. Manet is an instinct, I guess, an intellectuality, and he believes with Edgar Poe that one believes, becomes original by saying, I will not do a certain thing because it has been done before. So the same, the day came when Degas had put Semiramis aside for the ballet girl, a ballet girl that had not been painted before. It was Degas who introduced her and the acrobat and the reporters into art. And remembering that portraits lacked intimacy, he designed Manet sprawling on a sofa indifferent to his wife's music, thinking of the painting he had done that morning, or of the painting he was going to do the next morning. If Leonardo had lived in the 19th century, I said he might have painted like that, and I wandered on through the Louvre, thinking of the twain as intellectuals, till Rembrandt's portrait of his wife absorbed me, as no other picture had ever done. And perhaps, as no other picture will ever do again, the spell that it laid upon me was conclusive. When I approached, the eyes faded into brown shadow, but when I withdrew, they began to tell the story of a soul, of one who seems conscious of her weakness, of her sex, and the burden of her own special lot. She is Rembrandt's wife, a servant, satellite, watcher. The mouth is no more than a little shadow, but what wistful tenderness there is in it and the colour of the face is white faintly tinted with bitumen and in the cheeks some rose matter shows through the yellow she wears a fur jacket grey pearls hang in her ears there is a brooch upon her breast and a hand at the bosom of the picture passing out of the frame and the hand reminds us as the chin does of the old story that god took a little clay etc for the chin and hand and arm and moulded with that display of knowledge as nature moulds the mona lisa celebrated in literature Hanging a few feet away seems factitious when compared with the portrait. Her hesitant smile, hesitating smile, which held my youth in a little tether, has come to seem to me but a grimace and a pale mountains no more mysterious than a globe or map seems at a distance. A sort of riddle, an acrostic poetical decoration, a ballad rondella millenarial or ballad with double burden, a cecita or chanterelle, the Mona Lisa being luxury and intention rather than painting has drawn round her many poets, and we must forgive her many mediocre verses for the sake of a prose passage that our generation had by heart, the Mona Lisa and Degas Lechon de Dance, are thoughtful pictures painted with the brains rather than with the temperaments, and we ask, sooner or later, but assuredly we ask, of what worth are Degas' descriptions of washerwomen and dancers and racehorses compared with the fallen flower that have boasts on carpet above all the footstool, and if one of the Degas' pictures is brought for this gallery, I hope it will be one of these early pictures, the red-headed girl, for instance, an unfinished sketch exhibited some time ago at Knight's Bridge, the property, I believe, of Duran Ruel. 
In the days of the Novathans, we used to repeat Douglas' witticisms, how he once said to Whistler, Whistler, if you were not a genius, you would be the most ridiculous man in Paris. Leonardo made roads, Douglas makes witticisms. I remember his answers when I confided to him one day that I did not care for Dormir, the beautiful Don Quixote and Sancho Panza that hangs on the wall I had not seen then. That is my apology, an insufficient one. I admit that Douglas answered, if you were to show Raphael a Dormir, he would admire it, but if you were to show him a cabanel, he would say with a sigh, that is my fault, an excellent quip. But we should not attach the same importance to a quip as to a confession. Manet said to me, I tried to write, but I couldn't. And we must esteem these words as an artist's brag. I am a painter and only a painter. Degas could not boast that he was a painter and only a painter, for he often wearied of painting. He turned to modelling and he abandoned modelling for the excitement of the collection pictures, not for himself but for the Louvre. I've got it, he said to me in the Rue Malbouche. And he was surprised when I asked him what he had got. Great egotists always take it for granted that everyone is thinking of what they are doing. Why, the Jupiter, of course, the Jupiter, and he took me to see the picture. The Jupiter with beetling brows and a thunderbolt in his hand, he had hung a pair next to it, a speckled pair on six inches of canvas, one that used to hang in Manet's studio, and guessing he was about to be delivered of a quip, I waited. You notice the pair, he said, yes, I said, I hung it next to the Jupiter to show that a well-painted pair could overthrow a god. This is a picture by Mr. Sargent in this room, one of the fashionable women. She is dressed to receive visitors and is about to spring from her chair. The usual words, how do you do, Mary, are upon the crimson lips and the usual hysterical lights are in her eyes and her arms and are like bananas as usual. There is in his portrait the same factitious surface life that informs all his pictures and recognising fashionable gowns and drawing room vivacities as the fundamental sergeant. Degas described him as le chef de rayon de la peniture. The chef de rayon is the young man behind the counter who asks, I think, madame, that this piece of mauve silk would suit your daughter admirably. Ten yards at least will be required. If your daughter will step upstairs, I will take her to measure vous French stuff. Any one, Degas said once to me, can have talent when he is five and twenty. It is more difficult to have talent when you are fifty. I remember the salon in which Bastien Lapage exhibited his potato harvest, and we all admired it till Degas said the bourgeois of the modern movement. Then everyone understood that Bastien Lapage's talent was not an original but a derivative talent, and when Roll, another painter of the same time, exhibited the enormous picture entitled Work, containing 50 figures, Degas said, one doesn't make a crowd with 50 figures, one makes a crowd with five quips, merely quips, and there were far too many quips in Degas's life, and I include in my list of quips a great number of ballet girls. And racehorses, his butcher's corpulent wife standing before a tin tub was much talked about in our cafe. Until Monet returned after a long absence in the country, bringing with him 20 or 30 canvases. A row of poplars, seen in perspective against a grey sky, or a view of the scene, or the bridge cutting the picture in equal halves, or a cottage shrouded in a snow with some low hills. Pissarro admired these, of course, but his preferences ran to Sisley, who, he said, was more of a poet, and should a Sisley come later into the collection, my hope was that it would be a picture I saw years ago in the galleries of George Petit, the bare wall of the cottage, a frozen pond, some poplar trees showing against the first film of light, a vision of so exquisite, 
The constable's art seems to, in comparison coarse and clumsy. Monet's art is colder, more external, and those who like to trace individual qualities back to race influence may, if they will, attribute the exquisite reverie which distinguishes Shirley's pictures to his northern blood. Manet began by imitating Manet, and Manet ended by imitating Monet. They are great friends. Manet painted Monet and Madame Monet in their garden. Monet painted Manet and Madame Manet in their same garden. They exchanged the pictures, but after a quarrel, each returned to another picture. Monet pictures of Manet with his wife, and I never saw, but Manet's picture of Monet and Madame Monet belongs to the very wealthy merchant of Monsieur Polanyrin, who has the finest collection of Manets and Cezannes in the world. Cezannes exhibited with the Impressionists, but I do not remember having having seen him in Nouvelle Athens or heard him as name mentioned by Manuel Degas. Alex has told us once that I had breakfast with him morning in the Moulin de Lugat and that Cezanne had arrived in jackboots covered with mud and had spent 30 francs in a meal, which was an unusual feat in those days. And in those districts, Alex was struck by the resemblance of Cezanne to his pictures, a peasant came straight out of Reapers. He said, I thought of Manet, and we congratulated ourselves on the advancement of our taste, forgetful that the next generation may speak of Cezanne's portraits as the art of the trowel rather than the brush. The word masonry must have been in Zola's mind when he exalted Cezanne Le Vue, and at the dinner we celebrated the publication of the book, declared him to be the greatest painter than Manet. Both came from Axis. Both had talent, and both were denied the exquisite vision and handicraft of Sicily and Verlaine. Within the impression of movement there were two women, Mary Cassard, who derived her art from Degas, and Berthe Mousseau, who derived hers from Manet. Berthe Mousseau married Manet's brother, and there can be little doubt that she would have married Manet if Manet had not been married already. I remember him saying to me once, my sister-in-law wouldn't have noticed without me, been noticed without me, she carried my art across her fan. Berthe is dead, and her pictures are very expensive, and picture dealers do not make presents. But Mary Cassatt is alive, she is a rich woman, and I take this opportunity of suggesting that she should be asked to give a picture. After an absence of many years, I went to see her and found her blind but talkative as of yore, and we talked for all the people we had known, till at the end of the breakfast she said, There is one we haven't spoken about, perhaps the greatest of all. I said, You mean Renoir? And she reproached me with having been always a little indifferent to his art. I don't think that this is true, or if it be true, it's only true in a way. I know of nothing that I would soon hang in my drawing room than one of Renoir's bathers, or a portrait of a child in a grey fur dress to be taken to the boys or by her mother. Some of his portraits of children are the most beautiful. I know they are white and flower-like. They therefore are very unlike the stunted, leering little monkeys that Sir Joshua Reynolds persuaded us to accept as representative of tall and beautiful English children. I think it was at the end of the 60s of when I painted the celebrated picture of the woman looking into the canary cage, a wonderful picture, but so unlike his later work that that it may be doubted if anybody would recognise it as being by the man who painted the bathers. By the bathers I mean the plump girls whom he painted on green banks under trees, their fat so permeated with light that they might seem like luminous flowers, yet they are flesh and full-blooded flesh that would bleed. It may be that Manet never painted naked flesh so realistically. His art is less casual, less modern, less actual, and Menard's, he came out of a different tradition, and upon it is the birthmark of easy circumstances and the culture thereof. Whereas Renoir was a Persian workman, he began life in a factory painting flowers, and his talent was not sufficient to redeem his art from the taint of the inherited vulgarity. Whistler would have cried for an umbrella to hide himself under were he asked to consider the umbrellas. The man I see... When my thoughts, thoughts return to Neville, Athens is a tall, lean man with red in his ragged hair and beard, and his voice has a ring in it. If Renoir had not been as an, an ascetic, 
he would have been a socialist orator. Some of his denunciations are quoted in Confessions of a Young Man, and here is an anecdote that a few may think instructive. Money, money suddenly began to accumulate at his bank, and he bethought himself of a stock of wine and cigars, a carriage, several suits of clothes, or a flat in the quarter of the Champs Elysees, and a mistress in it. But turning from these legitimate issues, he went to Venice to study Tintoretto, and on his return to Paris, he laboured in a school of art until it became plain to him that his studies, instead of decreasing, were increasing the distance between himself and Tintoretto. I remember his embittered and vehement voice in the Nouveau Thins, and I caught a glimpse of his home life in the day that he went to Montmartre to breakfast with him, and finding him, to my surprise, living in the same terrace as Paul Waxes. I asked, shall we see Alexis after breakfast? And he would waste a whole afternoon when my mother was sitting there smoking a cigar and sipping on the musket on my picture mirror as soon as I were finished bring the asparagus and get your clothes off for I shall want you in the studio and we have had our coffee that evenings that Pissarro did not come to the Novalathens. We were so rare that I cannot think of the Novalathens without seeing him in a far corner of the night. On the right, listening to Manet and Degas approving of all they said, I remember these pictures, many of them as well as his white beard and hair and nose of the race of Abraham, he figures of confessions of a young man, and turning to his youthful book, I find an appreciation of him, and I think, as I think today, as I thought then, I will quote, speaking of a group of girls gathering around apples, gathering apples in a garden, I wrote, sad grey and violets, beautifully harmonised with figures that have seen, seem to move as in a dream rather than to the side of life, in a world of quiet colour and perfect resignation, but the apples will never fall from the branches, the baskets of the stooping girls will never be filled, the orchard is one that life is not forgiving, that the painter has set in an eternal dream of violet and grey, an apple orchard with peasants gathering the spare fruit of the mildew collected on the plant surface. The picture in the present exhibit represents Pissarro in this first period when he followed Coro. I hope Dublin will acquire it. And having said this much, my thoughts return to the last time I spoke with this dear old man, so I like himself in his race. So it was at Rouen about six years ago, whether he had gone to paint the cathedral for Monet having painted the cathedral. Why not he likewise? Why not indeed, for he always followed somebody's dream, but though his wanderings were many and sudden, he never quite lost his individuality, and not even when he painted yachts after a the manor in Sinak. Who had invented Impressionism was asked when he died, and attempts were made to trace Monet back to Turner. Monet, it was said, had been to England, and in England he must have seen Turner, and it was impossible to see Turner without being influenced by Turner. Yes, Monet was in England many times, and he painted in England, and one day he went together to an exhibition of old masters in Burlington House, and there we saw a picture for which many thousands of pounds had just been paid, and Monet said, Is that brown thing your great Turner? It is true, the picture we are looking at, we're looking at, was not much more interesting than brown paper, and I told him that Turner had painted other pictures that would he would like better, The Frosty Morning, and he said he had seen it, remarking that Turner had painted that morning with his eyes open. Whistler like Calais Pier, better than Frosty Morning, for it was more like his own painting, and no very special discernment is required to understand that Turner and Constable could not have influenced painters whose desire was to be dispersed altogether with shadow, whether by doing so they failed sometimes to differentiate between a picture and a strip of wallpaper in a question that does not come within the scope of the present inquiry, Mr Lane is asking us to consider if a collection of Impressionist painters would benefit Dublin, and it seems to me most certain that Manet, Monet, Sicily and Renault are more likely to draw our thoughts to the beauty of this world than a collection of Italian pictures gathered from the 15th and 16th century. Good, good, whatever. Bye. End of chapter. See you tomorrow.